Thank you, Southwestern Worship Ministry. Those uh, were phenomenal songs with great lyrics that are very appropriate to the message that God has for us. Thank you, Dr. Greenway, uh, for having uh, me come and worship with you all, the Southwestern family today, and thank you just for the opportunity uh, to be here with you. Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 10 together. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question this morning, and the question is this, who shot J.R.? Now, about a third of you in the room probably know exactly what I'm talking about. The other third says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Who's JR and why is he getting shot right now? And, uh, but this is, a, this is a question that all of America was asking itself back in the 1980s. And it was a catchphrase that was used to promote the show Dallas. And, uh, and the catchphrase had to do with who shot J.R. Ewing? back in that episode, and it was, a, it was a mystery. It was a great mystery, and it really took about eight months for the audience to come to terms and figure out who exactly shot this character and this individual in this show, to the tune of 83 million people, by the way, tuning into that specific show, and that really has been credited, credited as to uh, where television shows get the idea of a cliffhanger. Now, when it comes to mysteries and it comes to uh, the idea of mystery, when it comes to novels and it comes to television shows, uh, it's something uh, that can be fun. But whenever it's applied to the idea of what God is up to in the world, sometimes a mystery cannot be so fun. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, just a couple of chapters later from our text, Paul is talking about the idea of mystery. And he talks about a mystery and says that it is something that for ages has he's describing it, has been hidden in God who created all things. And so he says that God sometimes works in mysterious ways, that God uh, keeps things shrouded in mystery. We see this all throughout the pages of scripture. Uh, Jesus, he would teach in parables. And the reason he would teach in parables is because he said, it's for you to know, but for some to remain a mystery. You'll remember when Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus that he walked with a couple of disciples and it says that he kept their eyes closed from seeing and understanding who he was in that moment. Even Mary, whenever she found Jesus on that resurrection morning, was not able to see who he was immediately. And so when it comes to mystery, we see it all over the pages of scripture. But the first part of Ephesians chapter 3 verse 9 says this. It says that God is up to something when it comes to mystery. And that he's actually, the, the, the way it's said in the NASB is that he's bringing to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden. And so although God has worked in, in mysterious ways, right now in the present time in which we uh, live, he is up to something and he is right now disclosing Mysteries, And so one purpose actually for the book of Ephesians is for God to be uh, disclosing what he has been up to in the purposes of history. And so what we want to do today is we want to talk about how God has been doing that through what we're going to consider the aesthetic medium of storytelling and how God is telling a great story. That God actually has created the medium of storytelling and how he is employing that in history to tell his his story. And so here's the sermon in a sentence, if you will, that God is a sovereign storyteller who's inviting us into the greatest story ever told. Let's go ahead and read our text together. Would you stand in the honor of reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter one, verse seven says this, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed 
in him, that is Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Would you bow your head with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is before us in our hands. We pray that it would be applied to our hearts today, and that you would help us to see you as a sovereign storyteller who is telling the greatest story ever told. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the part that you are asking us and calling us even to play in it today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, may be seated. First thing we wanna see from the text is this, that God created storytelling to tell a grand narrative about the cosmos through Christ. So I want you to look with me. We're gonna do something different. We're gonna look at the back end of these, two, of these verses, and then we're gonna jump to the first part of this passage. But the major tension in the text has to do with the idea of mystery, as we have already discussed. And so look with me there in verse nine when it says uh, that he made known to us the mystery of his will. What is this mystery? Well, a mystery for Paul was something that was in the Old Testament that had not yet been revealed until the time that we call the New Testament. But I want you to notice at the beginning of verse nine, it says that this mystery is now being made known. It has been made known to us. And this mystery is God's will and it's being made known in Christ in verse nine. And so in other words, the mystery is now being solved. The mystery is, is now being disclosed to us in Christ, and this mystery has to do with the incarnation of Christ, which includes the death, burial, and resurrection, which we're celebrating this week as followers of Christ. And so this mystery now is being made known to us, and in fact, it, it's important for us to understand how it's being made known, that God's will is being made known in him, in Christ, and, and this is an essential term, an essential title, and an essential phrase in the text. The word Christ shows up 15 different times in the first 14 verses, and it shows up, the, the phrase in Christ shows up 11 different times. And the phrase is anchored really in verse three. And so if you look up there with me to verse three, let's read that. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in Christ. And so something is happening, something interesting is happening here in verse three for for Paul and how he is actually communicating this letter to the church in Ephesus. You see, so often in all of the different epistles that Paul writes, what he would do is he would have a regular introduction. And then he would jump into a statement where he begins to thank the individuals who are following after Jesus for their faith. And it was, a, it was a, an expression of thanksgiving for God's work in the lives of believers. But he does something different here in verse three. Here, what he begins to do is there is an outburst from Paul of praise for the Lord, really kind of in the style of an Old Testament eulogy, an Old Testament blessing. And so what he does here is he gives a blessing to God and, Father, and, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but then he actually discusses the grounds for that blessing. And so this is a very Old Testament style of writing that Paul is employing here. And so some examples might be Psalm 6620, where uh, the psalmist says, blessed be God, the God who has not rejected my prayer. So God is to be blessed because he has not rejected our prayer. Another example would be Psalm 72, 18, where God is to be blessed because he is the one who alone does wondrous things in the world. And so Paul is employing the same strategy here when he's talking to the Ephesian believers. He says, blessed be God, and then he grounds that blessing in this because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so what begins to follow is really kind of Paul going to a treasure chest, if you will, and just taking all of these different blessings out of that treasure chest. 
And what happens in the, in the first 14 verses of, of Ephesians is this, is really probably so scholars and commentators have said this is the longest discourse in ancient literature. Paul just doesn't stop. It's a run-on sentence. He just keeps explaining spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing, which includes a whole host of things, including election in verse four and adoption in verse five and grace in verse six and redemption in verse seven and revelation in verse nine and then consummation in verse 10. Blessing after blessing after blessing. These are the blessings that followers of Christ have in Christ, in other words. And, and the first blessing that he mentions here uh, in verse four is the act of God choosing us in him before the foundation of the world. And regardless of your soteriological view and understanding of what that really means, we know that it's qualified by this, the, that it happened before the foundation of the world, which really has to do with the fact that God is the initiator and creator of everything. So I want us to think about that phrase, that qualification this morning is this, that this is God's once upon a time. That whenever Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, one of these blessings is the election that we have, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that that is the once upon a time. And so the story would be that once upon a time, there was no time, but there was God. This is to say that God is the author of the cosmos. He preceded it, initiated it, and then he created it. Now, whenever you take the idea of what's happening in eternity past, and then you partner it with what he's talking about in verse 10 with the consummation of all things, what you really have is eternity past and eternity future. You have the God of eternity, in other words. And so what Paul is doing here in Ephesians as he's opening up this letter to this church is he's trying to juxtapose the God of eternality and the man of temporality. And so God is infinite and man is finite. We are bound by time. God is eternal. We live in three tenses. I was, I am, I will be. God lives in one present tense, which is I am, I am, I am. That's who God is. And so what we have here is the tension of an eternal God and temporal man, but God wanting to share his eternality with humanity with, uh, giving, by giving us the, uh, the gift of eternal life in Christ. This is the meaning of verse one when it says to the saints who are in Ephesus, but also in Christ Jesus. We live in Fort Worth. We live in Arlington. We live in Mansfield. We live in Kennedale, but we also live in Christ. We have this geographical relationship with him, although we live in the temporal and in the now. This tension is then unpacked in the history of the world, in the in-between, what's happening between the, the eternity past and eternity future. That's all the, the treasure troves of blessings, spiritual blessings that we have in verse five with adoption and grace and redemption and all these different things that Paul mentions here. And this really is what's meant by verse 10. Look there with me in verse 10. With a view, Paul writes, to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. I like how some translations translate the word administration there. They, they translate it as the word plan. Some even qualify it by saying it's a long range plan that God has. That word administration there really finds itself in, in the, the gospel of Luke in chapter 16 and one of the parables and other uh, different stories, but really what the word means is an administrator of a household. And so it's a, it means that this is the person who oversees a home, but then it was expanded to also include the administration of cities and states. And Paul is using it to talk about how God is overseeing the cosmos. And whenever it's qualified and, and partnered with the, the idea of 
the fullness of the times, which is a phrase that shows up in Galatians 4, which really is the summary of the gospel. What Paul is talking about here is really that as the administrator, this is God's job, but as the fullness of times, this is God's, uh, jobs, uh, God's job description, if you will. And so his job description is not only is he the administrator over the cosmos, but he's also the one who's doing things in the fullness of the time. So he created time, but he's also the one filling up the time with grace and redemption and forgiveness of sins and all of these different kinds of things. In other words, what we see is that God is in complete and utter control. He also uses, at the end of verse 8, he also describes God's administration in the fullness of times in these words, that it is done in all wisdom and insight, which is to say that what God is doing is he is very thoughtful in how he is planning out the history of the world. It's not impromptu. Now, J.K. Rowling, one of the more popular authors in our modern-day context, if you were to go to her website and you were to go to her About page and read her biography, you would read about, about how her series, the Harry Potter series, came to be. And you would read the words that she conceived the idea of Harry Potter in 1990, which was seven years before the very first book's release. And she was sitting on a delayed train from Manchester to London, uh, King's Cross. And over the next five years, she began to plan out not just the first book, but every single book of the series. And she, she, she meticulously planned out all of these different books. She was very thoughtful with this. What Paul is saying here is that God has put more thought into the cosmos than J.K. Rowling did into Harry Potter, than C.S. Lewis did for Narnia, than Tolkien did for The Lord of the Rings. And so all of these spiritual blessings that we see here present history really as God's story. And God is filling up history with his story in Christ. And so scholars of storytelling actually have come to the point where they have studied storytelling. It's a fascinating thing. And what they've determined when it comes to telling stories is that they have learned that there are actual rules to storytelling, principles. So whenever you're watching a Hollywood movie, what that means is that it's not just someone who's haphazardly sitting down and creating some kind of piece of art with whatever rules they would like, but they're actually following a set of principles. They're following a set of rules. It's not unlike physics. It's not unlike music. Now, I was in, uh, in band whenever I was in high school, and I was part of the symphonic band, and we would go in. I played trom trombone, and we would walk into the, uh, into the hall, and I would take my trombone out, and I would just start playing whatever I wanted to do. And sometimes, as a high school student, you would just want to make lots of noises. And so you can imagine walking into a band hall with hundreds of instruments just playing whatever they wanted to play, and all of the loudness and all of the music and all of the haphazardness that would happen with all of those noises. But at some point, the bell would ring, and the conductor would walk up on that stage, and he would take out his baton, and he would stand up there, and he would tap the podium, and all of us would sit up straight, the noise would stop, he would tell us to take out a piece, and we would begin playing that piece. And there was a stark difference between noise and music. Do you know what the difference was? It was that we began to follow the rules of music. Now, did mankind create those rules? No, we did not create the rules of music. We merely discovered them, and we discovered that God is the one who has created the rules to music. He's the one who created this beautiful thing that we just did a few moments ago, and he created the rules by which we follow in order to express worship to him. The same thing with physics and so many other things that exist in the world. And so when it comes to storytelling, what scholars of storytelling have, to, have come to conclude is that there are all these kinds of rules, but really they've concluded there are about seven of them at least that need to show up in every single story. 
These include, number one, there always has to be a protagonist, a character. There is always a problem. There's always a guide to help the protagonist. There's always a plan, a call to action, and that story will always result in either a success, if you use a, a literary term, it would be a comedy, or a tragedy, which is a failure. And if you were to study every single story, what you're gonna learn is that every story follows these rules. In fact, I wanna show you a couple of examples. Some of you all are gonna nerd out in a minute. So here's the first one, Star Wars. Star Wars follows this story. You have Luke Skywalker, and then you have the problem is that there's an evil empire. Is he a Jedi? Can he fight this? And then you have the guide, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then you have the plan, which is where he tells Luke to trust the force. And then you have the call to action, which is to go and defeat the empire. And that's gonna result in either destroying the Death Star or the rebellion being crushed. A more recent movie would be The Hunger Games. We have the same pattern being followed with Katniss as the main protagonist. She must survive. And then there's the guide, Haymitch, who's been there and done that. And then there's the plan to endear the public to get uh, help to win the Hunger Games. And she competes, and that's gonna end either in District 12, where she's from rejoicing, or District 12 being crushed because they lost their beloved champion. Every single story follows these kinds of roles. You can think of whatever story you love, whether it's a Nicholas Sparks flick or whatever, and you can apply the framework there. And what you're gonna find is that there are roles that we did not create that can only come from God that we follow in order to communicate something important. And here's the point. That as hope-based creatures, God has designed us to respond to the beauty of narrative. This is why Psalm 23, Dr. Greenway, is the most popular of Psalms. Because there's something poetic, deeply poetic, about the idea of lying down in green pastures with a shepherd and being led beside still waters. This is why when David refused to acknowledge his sin, that it took Nathan doing what? Telling a story to him and helping him find his place in that story about a rich man and a poor man and about the rich man who took the, the poor man's uh, lamb instead of using one of his own. And David was so mad at this person. And Nathan said, well, I'm talking about you. It hit home for him. This is why whenever I teach my four kids about the Bible, I don't talk about propositions so much as I tell them about stories. There's something about storytelling that hits home for each and every one of us. And what we're seeing here with the word administration and the fullness of times and summing it all up in Christ in verse 10 is this, that storytelling is a powerful, God-created, aesthetic apologetic to disclose God's authorship over history. That's what God is up to. Now, what I wanna do with our final few moments is this, is the second point is that not only has God created this medium by which he's telling the great story, the best story, the greatest story, uh, but what we wanna see is that our text actually tells the story for us. This is the middle part, if you will, between the eternity past and eternity future, between before the foundation of the world and then the consummation. In the very middle, what we have in verses seven and eight is the story that God is telling. Look with me again at verses seven and eight. Let's read it. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So what I wanna do for the last couple of minutes is I just want to just kind of walk you through those verses and show you how what scholars of storytelling have discovered when it comes to those seven principles of storytelling is actually something not only that God created, but that God is employing in cre the creation and history of the world. And so if we were to look at the character, that would be you, that would be me. This is what it means when Paul says in verse seven, we. 
And so he's talking about the protagonists of the story. Now, before I'm accused of prosperity theology, where I'm saying that we are the hero of the story, you must understand that when it comes to storytelling, that the hero is the weakest character of all. He's the one who's struggling. He's the one who needs help. He's the one who's weak. The guide, as we're about to see, is the one who's strong. And so what we have here is a, is a protagonist. In Genesis, we're told that we are a unique part of God's creation. But we also see that we were created knowing with the ability to be able to fall. And then we know that we are now born into sin. And so there's this weakness in us. And so this leads really to the problem that we see in the story, which is the need for redemption. And because we need to be redeemed means that we've lost our redemption, if you will, in God because of what happened on the fall, because of the fall that happened way back in that day. And so the problem is that we, humanity has fallen away from God, and so we need a guide. And so right here, God, as he's telling the story, tells us who the guide is right there at the very beginning in verse seven when he says, in him, one of those 11 times that that phrase shows up, in him. So Jesus is our guide. He really is the strong one of the story. He's the sinner of the story. He's the climax of the story. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, and yet he is without sin. He's the one who's been there and done that, got the t-shirt, and so we look to him to help us as we navigate our way through what's in the in-between. We also have the plan here as part of one of the storytelling principles, which is the blood. And so as we are in our fallen state and as we're looking at Jesus Christ, he's on the cross shedding his blood and he's saying, look, the blood is being shed for you through his blood is how Paul says this. Leviticus 17, 11 is a primary Old Testament verse that tells us that there must be blood in order for there to be atonement. It's part of the sacrifice. And ultimately, this points towards the Passover lamb where uh, we remember the Israelites in Egypt, uh, they, were, um, they were told that they needed to sacrifice a lamb and take that blood and put it over the doorpost. And that ultimately points it to the one that would be our Passover lamb. So when the wrath of God comes, we are covered by the blood. And this is the plan of God's story. We finally get to that call to action. What is God calling us to do in this story? Well, he wants to forgive us of our trespasses. He wants our sins to be forgiven. First John 1, 9 tells us that if, we're, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us of our sins. And that was either going to lead whether or not we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior or not. That's gonna lead to one conclusion or the other. The first conclusion is going to be the successful one, which is that we're going to experience the riches of his grace that he wants to lavish upon us. Look at that with me there according to the riches of his grace at the end of verse seven, verse eight, which he lavished on us. The next chapter, Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he'll, he'll say these words that it's by grace you've been saved. We just sang this a few minutes ago. It's by grace you've been saved and it's not of yourselves. I love how he says that he will lavish this grace on us. That word lavish carries with it the idea of overabundancy. So it's, it's abundant abundancy, if you will that he wants to cover us with this grace. And of course, if we refuse to confess our sins and turn to the Lord, then the story ends in a tragedy, which is eternal separation from the Lord. And so if you were to put this story in Ephesians chapter one, verses seven and eight on the screen in the story framework, it's gonna look something like this. Humanity falls, Jesus is our guide. He gives us the plan of the gospel. He gives us a call to action to turn to Jesus, which is going to result either in salvation or the tragedy of God's wrath coming upon us as we see in the book of Romans. So what does all this mean for us today as followers of Christ in this room? It means this, that God is telling a story 
and he wants us to discover our part in that story. He doesn't want us to look at him and say, God, discover your part in my story. I'm gonna create my own religion. I'm gonna create my own idol. I'm gonna create my own way. I, I want to be the author of my own story, the captain of my own ship. I wanna be the boss of my own soul. No, what we're seeing in Ephesians is that God is telling the greatest story ever and he wants us to discover our part in what he is up to in the world, ultimately by salvation, but also by retelling the story over and over again. David Covington is a Christian musician who illustrates what's meant by this. At one point, he decided he was gonna study God's word and he was gonna uh, look through God's word in order to become a better songwriter. And after that experience, let me share with you what he said, what he concluded. He said, the Bible shifted my questions to encompass all the arts and eventually all aesthetics. And I broadened my questions to probe the Bible about affections. Instead, the Bible probed me, the Bible changed me, and it changed my questions. We don't master songwriting or beauty or aesthetics. The beautiful one masters us. So what he did is the word of God sub submitted him and broke him to the point where he realized that he needed to find out how he can be a part of what God is up to in the world. You see, the church is designed to participate within the unfolding drama of God's redemption story in Christ. And we can do this in aesthetically pleasing ways by retelling the story, by painting, by poetry, by writing books, literature, music, and even, yes, even spoken word. As beings uniquely created in God's image, we are created to create. So we need to be enthralled with the greatest story ever told and find out how we, as followers of Christ, can go out and share that with the world. One of my favorite quotes of all time when it comes to biblical aesthetics is this. G.K. Chesterton says, this is a summary. This is not how he specifically put it, but this is how it's been summarized and popularized. Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. You know what Chesterton, the great apologist, was talking about there? What he was saying was that any story that's ever been written is really just a ripoff of the original story. And they're borrowing the rules that God himself has created, that God made, that God has employed, and they're just telling stories in all these different ways. And when we hear these stories, what happens is it gives us this hope that the enemy can be slain, that the dragon can be defeated. And so whenever we hear these stories, what happens is this, especially on the, in, in the week that we're currently experiencing, this Passion Week, this Holy Week, is that when we hear about a man 2,000 plus years ago, who died and was buried and yet came back from the dead, we hear that story. And how do we conclude? Well, we say, well, I believe it. I believe it. I believe that the dragon of death has been slain by the victorious conquering hero named Jesus Christ. This is how the old hymnist so beautifully articulated it. He said, I heard that old, old story about a savior who came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary. I have to end this this sermon with him as a good Southern Baptist, by the way, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. And I heard about his groaning, his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and what? Won the victory, won the victory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful today for your goodness to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who is overseeing the cosmos. And we thank you, Lord, that you're doing that in such a way where you didn't just initiate creation, and then you don't just arrive back at the end to consummate creation, but Lord, you are there in the in-between with us as well, telling the great story of Christ. 
summing all things up in him. And Lord, we have the great opportunity and responsibility to retell that story with our lives by all the things that we do. You've gifted us to do that. Some of us in this room, Lord, can paint. Some of us in this room can write. Some of us in this room, Lord, we can write poetry. We can do all these different kinds of things to express, Lord, the goodness of the Lord. And I wanna pray, Lord, that you would use us in those ways as we carry this greatest story with us. So Lord, I wanna pray a blessing over the Southwestern community. I wanna pray, Lord, that you'd be with these students in their studies, that you would be with them as, as they walk through this Passion Week, and that you would help us to know that the greatest enemy has been defeated by the only one who could do it, named Jesus. We pray this in his name.